Welcome. Life Before Medicine begins right now. This is part two of our episode on obesity. I know you recall part one. We got to speak with Dr. Kent Sassy, bariatric surgeon. We got to hear the medical perspective on this health epidemic. And today we continue with Dr. Sean Horndorf and my co-host, Heather Dipke. Hello. Let's jump right in. Sean, I am so grateful that you're here with us today, that you would make time to be on our podcast. And I know that everybody listening today is going to benefit. You have such an impressive resume. You are a PhD psychologist, a member of the American Board of Professional Psychologists and a board-certified clinical health psychologist and health behavior expert. You speak nationally on topics of health, weight, and wellness, and how most of the ways we approach these issues run counter to motivation science. I want to hear about motivation science. You earned your doctorate from Drexel University in Philadelphia and completed your pre-doctoral internship and fellowship in health psychology at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Great school. You have a top-rated podcast yourself called Motivation Made Easy, Body Respect, True Health. And you interview experts in the field and outline evidence-based and effective approaches to improve health and well-being. You have experience in research and patient care all over the country, including but not limited to Michigan State University, University of Chicago, their eating disorders program, Drexel University, Penn Center for Eating and Weight Disorders, and Rush University Medical Center. Sean's goal is to disseminate science-backed information and impact individual and systemic change to foster, 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 hello, foster health and well-being for all persons. Welcome. This is a tremendous opportunity for us. And um, again, thank you for making the time. I know you had a chance to listen to part one already. And I'm sure you have some impressions on our first episode. We try and sort of approach each topic with a medical perspective and then a second perspective outside the medical healthcare system. And, um, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. Now, Dr. Sassy spoke at some length about the things that have contributed to the obesity epidemic in this country that seemed to evolve during the 1950s and 1960s. And I found very interesting some of the remarks he made about food quality, the changes in food production, the presence of genetically modified foodstuffs, of antibiotics and hormones in meats, and uh, also complex drugs like antidepressants that may be present in small amounts in our water supply. And although he couldn't give any definitive cause and effect data on how these things might be contributing to the stark change we've all witnessed, he opined that there might be contributions. And I'd just like to hear in broad strokes, without getting too deeply into it, what you think about food quality 
and those things I just mentioned in terms of the obesity epidemic that we confront today. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and I love these kind of conversations. And uh, really a lot of my background was in research and as and I did listen to the episode and I really enjoyed it. And I, I mean, I think all of the factors that you mentioned, the, um, you know, using more antibiotic use, um, food quality, just the changes in our environment, the fact that we're moving less, all of those things absolutely play a role. And I loved, you know, the discussion about, you know, one of the things that I work with people, I mostly work with people one-on-one, although I have my podcast as well, um, is there's so much blame. And I know we're going to get into how harmful that is and sort of the mindset behind so many of these things. But um, I loved, yeah, there's absolutely environmental factors that are also contributing in a really negative way to our health. And so I think that's, um, really important to acknowledge that just because we're looking at like not blaming people or not shaming people into behavior change because it's not effective we're not also saying there's nothing to be changed with regards to our health and um, a lot of my background prior to going off and starting my own practice pretty recently just a year and a half ago was in preventive cardiology and I think there's a lot of really exciting movement in the preventive cardiology space to really look at habit change and things like whole food plant-based diet or what we call plant predominant eating styles, more whole foods. We know that that is really health promoting. It's really great for our gut health. And I think there's so much we're going to learn over the time with our gut health. Um, But as we're going to talk about psychology also plays a big role in our gut health and even mindset has been shown to impact things like our hormones. So the the cool and challenging thing about this work is there's a lot of different moving parts all at once. So it is hard to parse apart really cause and effect as Dr. Sassy and you kind of talked about already. Right. It really seems to be a symphony of influence. And, and, mm-hmm. and we know in, you know, uh, medical science that, you know, different human, um, phenotype phenotypes interact with the environment differently so not every change that we've witnessed since the 50s and 60s is going to impact people the same way and Mm -hmm. um and so it it might be sort of a fool's errand to try and you know be able to simplify this down to one or even a handful of causes that have that have contributed to this epidemic but um it stands to reason um, that some of these environmental factors certainly do. Um, mm-hmm. We have learned a lot in the last two decades about the role of GI flora in not just weight management, but mood and health in general. And a, um, I was very interested to talk, about, to talk to you about your opinions and how um, an individual's stress level or psychology or sleep patterns might impact this really essential component of our physiology, that is to say mm-hmm. the, the gut health. What can you say about that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll share one study that if you haven't heard about it, it's, it's really relevant and it's still a small piece, but I think it really shows 
how important psychology and, and mindset is onto our physiology. And this is a study by Aaliyah Crum's lab. She's doing amazing work at Stanford where they took people and they gave them a milkshake that was about 300 calories or so. And they labeled the milkshake either the indulgent milkshake and they said it was 600 or so calories or the sensa shake, this low fat, really sensible shake, right? 120 calories or something like that. So they randomly assigned it. So now we can determine cause. So that's the cool thing about the work she's doing. And she gave, they gave the participants their milkshakes and they measured their ghrelin levels over time as they were, you know, as they're going through having the milkshake. And so ghrelin is a um, peptide that's associated with hunger and satiety. So we'd want our ghrelin to kind of go down over time as we're eating to so show that we're satisfied. This is growing like ghrelin. Oh, like, it was growing. That's yes. a particularly cruel Gre name. <laughs> yes. Ghrelin. G-H-R-E-L-I-N. And there's a number of different hormones associated with hunger and satiety, but that's one. And what was pretty fascinating is that they found that the people who perceived themselves as consuming this higher calorie milkshake, this indulgent milkshake showed a, a pretty significant drop in ghrelin compared to the control group. So basically suggesting that they were more full, They and they reported this too, but they saw physiologically that they were more satisfied with this indulgent milkshake. They thought they had consumed more calories, their body and their brain expected that they had consumed more, and they actually you know, felt more satisfied and it wasn't just in their mind, right? right? Did they correlate ghrelin response to BMI in that study? Did some people respond more than others? I don't believe they did anything with that in that study. I'd have to go back because it's been a little bit, but they, I don't think so. Well, that's very interesting. And it kind of gets at mm -hmm. this set point theory that Dr. Sassy talked about a little bit you know, in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that left me feeling a little bit discouraged, frankly, that, you know, yeah, there's all these other things that you can do and medications in particular we we're talking about. But after two years, people, although they lost weight initially, seem to gain it all back and nothing really compares to the gastric sleeve as a modern surgical strategy for dealing with obesity. And mm -hmm. I just wonder what you, th is that true? Are we born with a set point or is the set point established somehow during our childhood or adolescence or young adulthood? What do you think about this set point theory? Yeah, and I actually, right before this interview, because I love, I, I dug into the research just to make sure I was up to date. I think there's a lot we need to learn about this. It, it, it really is a theory. I, I believe our genetics does play a big role in where our weight goes. And I think we know that really well from twin studies of twins, you know, that were raised together or separated, is that your your weight is a lot more like other folks that have your identical genetics. And as we were talking about, environment certainly matters. Um, and I would say, you know, obviously there's a lot of factors that matter, but I, I think it's more, and I'd, some people will call it like a settling point. Like it's, your body is going to have a, a set point that will probably change across your lifetime. And that may be expected. It may also be resp in response to dieting. So my the people I work with most are people that have been chronic dieting. Typically they're binge eating, emotional eating as well. That tends to push set point up over time. And so there's, 
and I think what we don't know really well, I haven't seen really good data on it is that, you know, how much can we bring that back down and how long does your weight have to be up before that's your new set point? I haven't seen really compelling research to, to answer those questions because there are a lot of complicating factors like mindset, right? And, and what people believe is the right weight for them. And that's a lot of what I work with people one-on-one with. Right. But it's encouraging to make the, um, to, to state that the set point may not be set in stone, right? Mm-hmm. That it actually may be modifiable and is established based on behaviors and to a greater or lesser extent. I mean, of course, there are differences between individuals. Um, and so it wouldn't surprise me that we're born with a certain set point, but with that set point may exist within a range of set points that might be modifiable. I and mean, the fact is, if anybody, regardless of your BMI, stops eating, they will lose weight. And so, you know, sometimes I feel like when I'm talking to patients about this issue, there's this magical thinking that somehow they're gaining weight without eating. You know, it's, it's become this, this defeating or defeatist attitude that I never eat anything and it's unfair, and even though I don't I eat anything, I gain weight, defying the laws of thermodynamics. And so what do you think about that? So I think that sometimes that does occur. I, I do truly think that occurs in some people, not that they're not eating anything. Right. But I, I do think some people's physiology is so depressed sometimes because of chronic dieting that their metabolism is a lot lower. And they've shown that when they've studied, it's an extreme example, but the biggest losers, they studied their metabolism and they looked at the fact that even after they lost all that weight, almost all of them regained it, their metabolism was still slower at that, even after they had regained their weight. Slower compared to normal body weight individuals. Slower compared to what it was. um, Yeah, it it was someone else who stayed that weight their whole life. Mm. So someone who had already just maintained whatever weight that they had been, they compared that to someone who hadn't lost the dramatic amount of weight. And 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 so, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. So if there's a statistical significance in metabolic rate that's based on dieting patterns or diet patterns, is it clinically relevant? Is it a 1% difference or are we talking about a 30% difference in caloric expenditure just from living? It was pretty significant. I would have to look it up, but it was, let's say, I'd have to look it up and I'm happy to send it to you. We could link it in the show notes, that study, because they do have a, it was clinically significant. I want to say it was like, you know, the average person at that weight would have been burning like 2,200 and they were now burning like 1,800 every single day. So that's a huge difference. Mm. Don't quote me on those exact numbers, but I think I'm in the ballpark. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. That is interesting indeed. And do you think that one eating pattern portends more to that kind of uh, unfavorable shift in metabolic rate? Is fasting a pro- more of a problem than keto or What do you think about the different eating styles that have been popularized? So I, I believe in, you know, I'm probably biased because I worked in cardiology for so long. And I think all of the evidence I've seen is a more plant predominant eating style is the most health promoting across all health conditions. I have not seen, there may be some exceptions to that. And I think preferences should play a role, but um, I think, 
some people come to me and they say intermittent fasting feels really good to them. Most people that I work with though, have a history of binge eating. Most people intermittent fasting doesn't work for them super long-term their bodies respond and then they just end up binge eating more. But I would say like a whole food plant-based diet. If I would say I'm going to pick one eating style, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, I'm sorry. I think for a lot of people, the, a, um, it's challenging because, okay, now they're going to make this fundamental life change, but they have a household full of other people that Mm -hmm. may not be as motivated or feel the need to make similar changes. And what, what do you tell clients in, in terms of integrating behavior changes for yourself because your life literally depends on it when there's other people within your home that, that may resist that kind of change? I would want to dig in with them about why they really want to make this change and keep digging and keep digging because a lot of people are like, well, clearly because of my health. Right. And okay. Also health is actually for most people, more of an external motivator. So a lot of times what I talk about on the podcast is motivation types. There's a really robust theory that I love talking about. And basically Long story short, we want to be promoting internal motivation versus external shoulds, right? Like nobody wants to eat something because they should um, consistently, right? When when it feels like a should, we're not going to do it consistently over time. And so I really worked with people to say like what, you know, one internal motivation is we eat this way because we like it, right? Or we exercise because we enjoy it. That's intrinsic motivation. Um, But a lot of times we have to unpack the shoulds and a lot of times health, even though it's really well-intentioned for the person and for the medical providers, it becomes a should, it becomes judgment and pressure. And so a lot of times the work I do with people one-on-one is like, what messages have you gotten about what you should do? What's important? And, and, and why do you want to make a change? And, um, a lot of times we have to unpack some of the messages they've gotten first before we can really dig into why is this important to you? Mm. Um, and I think and that then, can run yeah. both ways. You know, people might've grown up in a family where diabetes is their normal, where obesity is the normal, where, mm-hmm. you know, uh, cardiac disease or, or stroke is so common in their family that if it happens to them, well, it's just my family. How do you address that? other side of the coin that says, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm really not motivated to make change because it's just the way my family and even maybe my community is. I think acknowledging it, right. And saying like, like if I thought I was doomed to have heart disease, no matter what I did, I would not be motivated to make a change. Right. Like would anyone, <laughs> if right. I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do, we're going to be like, I'm not particularly motivated unless we really love eating that way or love exercising that way why would we do it because the outcome isn't going to change we feel helpless and so I think acknowledging to that person like you feel like what you no matter what you do it's not going to make a difference and they might be like yeah yeah, that's true that's how I feel and then you might say and here's what we know. And um, the cardiologist I worked with was great about like, here's what we know from the data. Here's what we know about the health habits that are health promoting. And when we think about this weight conversation, and I know that's obviously what we're talking about here, the way the idea of 
controlling the number on the scale can be very disempowering. We want to focus on things we truly have control over because yes, short term, if you make a calorie deficit, you will very likely lose some weight unless you've been chronic dieting, in which case that always doesn't always happen. But most of the time people will see some weight loss, but they will probably, most people do see weight regain, you know, those statistics are not made up. And so when people, they get, they feel very helpless, right? Not only Mm -hmm. if they feel doomed to have heart disease, but because weight and disease is so interlinked and it's a, it's a correlation. We actually don't know that weight is causing any of those problems, but it does come along with it. And we get these messages all the time. And then people feel incredibly disempowered. Do you think from a physiology standpoint that it is worse to lose weight and regain it repetitively than it is to never lose it at all? I, you know, if you would have asked me that question not that long ago, I would have said, no, it's better to try. I am no longer convinced of that. I think it is likely worse to keep weight cycling than to maintain healthy habits at a stable weight. Okay. And maybe this is a launching point for us to talk a little bit about the body positivity movement. Dr. Sassy and I Mm -hmm. talked about it and how there it, there seems to be or or it can be perceived to be uh, an effort to normalize some the perhaps greatest health risk factor that uh, North Americans at least are dealing with today uh, specifically obesity and so i mean first do you consider obese obesity to be a significant health risk factor or what's your opinion on that So this is also significantly changed. So my dissertation was on obesity. Um, I don't use the term obesity anymore, and I don't think the term BMI is very instructive. The BMI was really used to be on a population level. So I think to look at population level, like trends, absolutely. And as an individual measure of health, I don't think it's valuable. And it doesn't mean that we don't look at weight. So it doesn't mean that we don't look at someone's weight and how it's impacting them. It's just the weight height ratio. And then boxing people in, I don't find that to be very helpful. But again, that's changed pretty recently. And um, but that's how I feel now. And, And it's not I don't view it as so the health at every size movement, I think is very misunderstood. And I know, well, I know it is because it just gets lost in translation. And really what we're, what the movement is trying to do is remove weight bias, weight stigma and shame from the individual, but not normalizing unhealthy behaviors. Like that is not the goal, but it gets lost in translation and social media, frankly. And there's a lot of arguing about it and it's just not helpful, but um, it's kind of like with, I mean, we, we don't want to stigmatize unhealthy behavior because then it just makes people like it more of a should like, oh, I should never eat a hamburger because that's so bad. And then it just makes our brain want it more. And food is so much more of a complex set of behaviors than, say, smoking. So like smoking, we kind of had some success with smoking, right? Because we kind of stigmatize smoking a bit. Like yeah. the behavior of smoking is pretty stigmatized we kind of do stigmatize the person a little bit too. I think people that smoke can have a lot of shame about it, but food is so complex. And I think we're almost using that to try to counter that. But I, so I think the health at every size movement isn't saying everyone is healthy at every size, but it gets lost in translation. It's really saying let's stop shaming people 
and trying to shame them into behavior change. And let's stop pretending that there's only one right body because the reality is body diversity is a fact. And there's a lot of different bodies that can be healthy. And when we try to calorie restrict, people tend to gain weight over time and increase health risk. And, and I think it's, and Sean, oh, sorry. Sorry. Please. Sean, you did a great podcast on this with, I think it was Anique Besso. She's a registered dietitian. Yeah. Um, so if people have an interest in that, I would direct them to go to your website, which I'm sure we'll provide at the end. But I really enjoyed that whole discussion that you guys had because you you did talk a lot about there's a variety of cultural norms around eating and body shapes and sizes um, that I think we don't appreciate in America because we tend to pigeonhole everyone into having to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I loved your talk and your discussion that you had about that and just hearing Anique's journey with kind of her acceptance with her body type over time. Um, And I would love for you to, you're welcome to share a little bit more about some of that discussion you had, but um, I just wanted to bring that up because it was very good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that one was great. There's another one I did with Dr. Jillian Murphy that kind of talks about like the health at every size it is a like social acceptance movement but we're not trying to normalize unhealthy behaviors and it's also like an evidence-based movement and there is a lot of science behind it but again it's just uh, i don't know it gets lost sometimes you know i'm struck by i I think we can kind of separate health consequences um at least in broad terms you know, between the mechanical health consequences that might result in orthopedic problems as a consequence of having um, a higher weight, um, trying to avoid mm-hmm. the, using the word BMI, um, <laughs> and, a, um, and then other consequences like cardiovascular risk. Now, I'm aware that if you're treating a person for hypertension and they're taking a medication and you achieve normal blood pressure that they are not then the same as someone who never had hypertension. And so I wonder for the um, patient that is able to achieve substantial weight loss, do they actually normalize their health risks compared to someone who never had a problem carrying excessive weight? Yeah, I think that's a question that, so there's what's called the National Weight Control Registry that studies these rare, pretty rare folks. And when I say rare, so they, in this registry, they've lost at least 30 pounds and maintained it for at least a year. But on average, the people in the registry have lost more, I think it's like closer to 50 pounds and they maintained it for for longer. But this is really a small sliver of the population. I think the problem is when we're talking about substantial weight loss, like if we're talking about losing maybe 20 to 30 pounds and keeping it off, there's a chance that if you're, sometimes if you're a chronic dieter, your body responds and doesn't even allow you to do that. But some people are able to do that, maintain some healthy habits and keep that off. There's a pretty good chance that if they're maintaining those healthy habits, they're probably doing well if they're not like fighting tooth and nail to maintain that. And I think what I've always been interested in, I actually know some of the researchers who work on those studies um, on the National Weight Control Registry is like, what do we know about the psychology and stress level of those people and and, and their health risks? My, my sense is it's probably decent, but if they're fighting tooth and nail and they're super rigidly maintaining a really restrictive diet, 
the stress of that might be impacting their quality of life and it could be impacting their health risk. I, I don't think we really know. And it is hard to measure because they're such a sliver of the population. Right. Um, and just but, how they're yeah. treated by society, you know, is going mm-hmm. to have an impact on their yeah. sense of well-being, their, yes. the way they feel about themselves and probably their decision-making about whether they you know, try uh, different sorts of activities that might be beneficial or not beneficial. We live in a yeah. society, especially now with, you know, all the social media outlets that, you know, create unrealistic um, images, especially for women, um, about what, you know, the ideal body is. And it just seems unavoidable. If you are excessively overweight, I think the impact of all that messaging has got to be detrimental and counterproductive to you making any kinds of changes that, that would be. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And you're, it's such a good point. We can't actually like take that away because they, we can't randomly assign weight stigma to some people and not others. And we can't, although there have been studies that have definitely definitively shown the negative impacts of weight stigma, but it is hard to like parse apart when we're thinking about the health impacts of, um, because we know that weight stigma is really stressful. We know that it is associated with weight gain. We know that it's associated with poor mood, like even more perceived weight stigma, whether or not it's true by the person, they're more likely to be depressed and anxious and suffer with um, binge eating disorder, things like that. Right. I would think it would put people at risk for developing an eating disorder. Um, And we Mm -hmm. see that in quote unquote normal weight individuals already. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I would, um, most of the clients that I work with, um, especially because I have the history of working a lot in the weight loss surgery clinic for so many years are in higher, larger bodies, higher body weight. And they have various varying degrees of significant eating disorders. Um, and, and that's another myth, right? It's like eating disorders are like thin people and that's not true. And in fact, and, and I would say body size has little to do with the disordered eating patterns. Um, you can have the exact same pattern at a higher body size, but the experience of being in a higher body size is a lot different. Um, mm. Recovering from that um, disordered eating is, is harder for someone in a lot of your body because they're more likely to go to the doctor and be told to go on a restrictive diet or be shamed for something or right. blamed. What do you think about treating someone with an eating disorder with bariatric surgery? I would not recommend, I, I we, we got to have this psychological component along with that. And I think most people that go through bariatric surgery and haven't addressed their relationship with food really wish that they had. Um, cause I work a lot with people before and after, and that's a big regret that they had. Um, it is very unlikely temporarily there could be some weight loss. There probably will be weight loss and reduction in binge eating temporarily. And that person, we know that weight loss is actually associated with short term with a reduction in binge eating. So Temporarily, that could help, but it's mm. not going to address anything long term. So when you were working in a bariatric surgery clinic, I think I heard you say, mm-hmm. do you feel that they were given adequate counseling with you there to make a decision about when and if to go ahead with surgery? I don't, and I don't believe it was due to like 
the surgeons not caring or the clinic not wanting to set people up for success. However, um, we had a really high volume of patients and we had to, everyone had to have a psychological evaluation before surgery. So my time and the other psychologist's time was very tied up with those pre-surgical evaluations, clearing people. And we did do some work with them before and after, but it wasn't enough. And I, I think the patients would agree it, the surgeons PAs, they'd all agree, <laughs> but it was kind of a product of the system and the high volume and not having enough of the mental health team to go around. So fundamentally, uh, a healthcare financing problem, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. th- and there we are. And it's you know mm-hmm. not far off from the problems we see today with mm-hmm. mental illness being managed mostly in incarceration, um, with incarceration, right? Like, mm-hmm. why are we spending money on incarceration when we, we really need to be managing the mental health directly and immediately? And so yeah, that seems absolutely. to be a recurring theme in our society. Yeah, and I worked in two days a week in preventive cardiology and three days a week in bariatrics. And I just saw the, you know, I'm on the one end of really trying to do preventative work and then the other end. And it was uh, definitely a healthcare financing issue. The preventive cardiology clinic. They're both great clinics. I loved everyone I worked with, but um, we just didn't have the, definitely didn't have the finances to grow my my days there or the team there. Interesting. You know, you sometimes hear that it's all about diet. It's all about nutrition. And, you know, like 80% of weight loss is related to diet. And maybe 20% is related to other factors like exercise. What do you think about that? Um, and mm-hmm. with respect specifically to, you know, how important is exercise and what kind of exercise is, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. cardio versus weightlifting versus something mm-hmm. else. What's your thought on that? Yeah. I mean, I think short term, the statement that you made is probably generally true. It's hard to measure like what percentage um, short term we see people lose weight faster with calorie reduction than like increasing exercise simply because like greatly increasing exercise enough to burn a ton of calories like is stressful to the body I know like I've only I ran one marathon and I is actually I've I share a lot on the podcast that I used to be a chronic dieter and binge eater so I've had this experience personally and um I was just giving up dieting at the time I ran my first and only marathon and uh I gained weight during that marathon not probably well, maybe a little bit because I had given up dieting, but I was doing a ton of exercise, um, but it was really easy to like eat. Uh, and I wasn't, and I was no longer binge eating because I finally gave up dieting. <laughs> but my, my weight went up a little bit. And mm. um, and so I think that's a piece of it. Um, we do know that for long-term weight loss maintenance in the National Weight Control Registry, those folks are exercising quite a bit, usually walking about an hour a day. Um, so for weight loss maintenance, I would look at if you're like, I want to maintain this weight loss that I've worked really hard to lose, like exercise, finding something you enjoy, I think. And of course, yeah, strength training is good for everyone just because we all lose muscle mass when we age, especially women. So, Mm. but I think more important is what do you enjoy, you know, because we want to develop that intrinsic motivation um, and, and enjoy movement, which is easier for some people than others for a lot of different factors and And reasons. And it kind of brings to mind again, the hunger satiety set point we were talking about. If, you know, do you think exercise is moving that hunger satiety set point within the range every individual is born with? Yeah. um, I think that, you know, 
it's a it's a great question and i think i think it probably depends a little bit on like are you exercising to the point where it's increasing your level of stress in the body in a negative way or is it enough stress and you're letting yourself rest enough that it's a positive way so um I'll share that like mo- a couple months ago, I was during a really stressful period of my life and I was starting to exercise again, doing orange theory, which is a pretty intense like yeah. exercise and I'm still doing it. I actually really, really enjoy it. Cause I'm finally getting back to exercise like so regularly. Orange after. theory, you're in a room with a bunch of other people and everybody's stats about their level of exercise is projected for everyone else to see. So you're kind of like com- competing yeah, against the room. It's kind is of intense. It? Yeah. Like it's your heart rate, it's heart rate. And then, yeah, it's that part is kind of weird, <laughs> but I like the exercise itself because you're like, when I was first doing it, they hadn't adjusted my heart rate, and I was always it was like Sean in the red, in the red. I'm like, I'm not dying, I feel fine. But anyways, it's it's an interesting psychological experience. But um, I was finding after these workouts, and I was only doing it twice a week, and they're an hour, and they are intense. But um, I was so drained, and I think it was I was I had a lot of other stressors going on. And it was too much for my body. So, so my answer is, I think it depends. I think there's a, a sense of, so I, I started to do the workouts and I've just like not pushed myself as hard and that seemed to work. And now I'm back to feeling better and be able to rest between. But I think it's really important that we kind of have an understanding for ourselves, but also providers that help us understand that like rest is a really, really important part of a healthy body. And and, and so many times and so many people that I've worked with, we just give them this prescriptive exercise routine, right? And I providers and I've been in NIH weight loss trials where we're like, we're aiming up for this many minutes and, you know, yeah, there's something to that. I'm not saying we should just not talk about exercise, right? But um, we do have to have a flexible approach and that's going to lead to a more, more self-trust, more sustainable habit change if people's like I have permission to rest this week or just do some light walks and yoga because I got a lot going on and I'll get back to high intensity if that's what I like and that's how my body Mm -hmm. feels good and I think on your website which I really enjoy as well you know you get into that whole kind of self-determination theory as far as motivation and what you're Mm -hmm. speaking of definitely pulls in where people need to feel kind of empowered that they're Mm -hmm. making decisions and goals based upon things that are meaningful to them um, and us not putting our, what we think is meaningful to them on that person. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think that's really important um, that we take into account that everybody is very different Um, and the needs of each person is different and i liked what you said about um if i'm assuming this correctly like not ruminating over the numbers the numbers on the scale but really looking at okay we may or may not have a weight management problem but it's it's not about the numbers it's developing better habits right Mm -hmm. that are going to help that person become healthier overall Um, And if the number on the scale changes, great, but that shouldn't be our marker for success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think that, and one of the reasons I love what I do and it's challenging is like the, the health habits are sort of at the surface. Have you you seen that like big tip of the iceberg image Mm -hmm. that you get that the health habits are up here and, and they're really important and there's so much underneath our health habits, like 
do we think, do we believe in ourselves? Do we think we're worthy of taking time for ourselves? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff to, and and if you've given the message that like your weight's in your control, get it together. Like, what do you, what are you doing? Why? And and so many people, I I did about probably a thousand pre-surgical evals for, for weight loss surgery. And people would be like, I'd ask them a simple question um, about, you know, their eating habits or like if they ever feel out of control with their eating, assessing for binging, they're like, well, clearly look at me. And and the answer is not everyone who has weight loss surgery has binge eating. It's only about 30 or so percent have some level of loss of control eating. And so if that's their internalized assumptions about themselves, right? So they don't feel effective. They're like, clearly like, mm-hmm. look, and, and sometimes it's kind of a defense mechanism. Um, but they've been given that message, like get it Mm -hmm. together. You're failing, but really the system is failing them, right? Like look at the stats. Well, and I think it's just, maybe we're missing the forest for the trees. We see someone whose health and well-being may be benefited by substantial weight loss. And so we approach it as a weight loss problem when in fact, more fundamentally, Um, there is at least a significant component of a behavioral problem, and you can't change a behavioral problem without spending time and effort fostering mental discipline, changing a negative narrative that may be playing over and over and over in someone's mind. And so when you focus on recommendation for caloric restriction or even a healthy plant-based diet, you may be, it's like you're not even ready for that yet. Like maybe Mm -hmm. the effort should be focused more on how do you improve discipline, mental discipline. Mm -hmm. None of us get any instruction in that. And and look at all of the bad consequences that occur from a lack of discipline, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to feel your feel what you feel. Like I I I have um two young kids now and I'm like, oh, there's so many things that we should be teaching. So or so much earlier than we are with regards to like, yeah, you feel that and you're still going to bed or like, and, and that's, it's a hard boundary of like empathy and like seeing people where they're at and still saying, and we have to do this thing, right. Or we, we need to still go to school or whatever. So is there a field of discipline psychology that helps people develop better discipline? Are there tools and practices that you can do you know, I, I suppose if you were able to do those things, you'd have good discipline. But, you know, maybe there's a starting point where it's a, just a little bit of discipline, def, you know, delayed gratification or some some kind of exercise that would help you, you, you know, have yeah, that I th- starting I think, point covered. I mean, I would I would definitely send people to selfdeterminationtheory.org. It's an incredibly robust um, theory of motivation and behavior change that has been studied, yes, in health behaviors. That's what we're talking about here. But like literally every domain across all cultures. And, um, and I think that that's what we really, it's a great framework because we really, to understand how to develop more discipline, you need to have understanding about how you're perceiving it. And there are different personalities. Some of us need more external accountability. Some of us are really internally driven. Once we stop shaming ourselves, like they can just take it and run with it. So it's Mm -hmm. also, you know, kind of understanding yourself and your personality. And I think they do a really good job of um, breaking that down in these different areas of life. And it's a excellent resource. Outstanding. We have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. I know. And I I think 
most meaningful, especially the last thing you said about selfdeterminationtheory.org really fascinates me as, as finding a fundamental starting point that actually makes sense. How can you apply anything if you don't have the basic tools? But also, you know, kind of validating the concept of a biological set point for hunger satiety, um, but that that set point exists within a range and that that mm-hmm. range, and this is the really interesting part, is modifiable probably in a lot of ways, but we, we heard about one way, really just based on your belief about what you're consuming actually changes hormone levels that would affect hunger satiety and adjust your set point. That's incredibly interesting. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. Um, thank you. Um, I would like, if you don't mind, uh, for you to share how people can reach out to you, follow you, continue to benefit from all of the important work you're doing. What's the best way for people to stay in contact? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a website, um, drshawnhondorf.com. That's a great place to find pretty much everything I have going on. Um, You can get on my email list and you can get notifications about new episodes. I also have some free resources on there, which is always fun. Um, My podcast is Motivation Made Easy, Body Respect, True Health. And um, that one will be coming out with regular episodes again starting in September. So um, we do a lot of a lot of great resources and interviews there. And um, what I'm really excited about this fall, we're going to come out with more um, people coming on and sharing their, their stories and sharing how they've kind of worked through some of these things. And so I got experts, but we also got personal experiences all woven into one. When, before I let you go, and as a means of teasing an upcoming episode, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on this topic of medical trauma. We have an outstanding guest that's going to share bravely, courageously, their experience um, within our healthcare system that um, has resulted in a substantial degree of trauma for them. And how, how common and how treatable, is this something that you encounter in your practice? Um, what can you say about that? Yeah, um, I, you know, it's interesting Yeah. Well, I want to make a broad comment about trauma in general, because I think a lot of people are talking about trauma and I think it's really important. I think the human experience, like trauma is part of it. Now we have these big traumas, right. That we think of as trauma and like going to war and, and all of those, you know, uh, sexual assault, things like that. And there's these traumas that are really bypassed. And so much of my work is helping people uncover and validate some of the painful experiences they went through. And it's incredibly healing and, and really rewarding work for hard work for them, um, but really rewarding work because we see true change. And absolutely that's happening in medical settings a lot, um, especially with um, people that I work with where they, and, and they don't perceive it as trauma, right? They're like, they just blame themselves for it, especially when right. it's someone that's like, well, just, just lose weight or, and, um, and, and then other times it is more like some big major thing was missed because they were told to just lose weight and that can be incredibly traumatic. Right. So, and we know that people for good reason are afraid to go to the doctor because they're like, I'm sick of being told to just lose weight. And then they don't have things caught. Right. And then they develop cancer down the road and they have a lot of regret that they didn't go sooner. That's incredibly traumatic. And I think, so a good deal of my work is helping people 
understand, you know, not blaming medical providers, of course, because I've had a lot of experience in those systems. And uh, I, I was trained in a weight normative system, right? Thinner is better. This is the way to be healthy. Um, I think there's a lot of empowerment as we move away from that. And there's a lot to process and unpack as you unlearn some of these old ways of thinking about it. Outstanding. Thank you for sharing that positive final note. This has been Life Before Medicine. We try and close the information gap that exists between the healthcare system and the public. Today, we have been greatly benefited by the presence of Sean Hondorp. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. We'll be in touch. You be in touch, too. Thanks very much. Thank you.